Blog Talk Radio. While you're strolling down the fairway, showing no remorse, growing from the poison they sprayed on your golf course. While you're busy thinking birdies and keeping your scorecard, the devil's been busy in your backyard. Good evening. And welcome to The Truth Squad with Marty Oakley and Barb Peterson, where we will be talking about things that the mainstream media wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. This show is sponsored by the PPJ Gazette and Aggie the Traveling Agrobacterium. You don't want either one showing up in your backyard. To find out all you want to know about current events and GMOs, visit the PPJ at ppjg.wordpress.com and Aggie at farmwars.info. And good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley of the PPJ Gazette. And with me, of course, is Barb Peterson from Farmwars. Barb, say hello. Hello. (laughs) I bet you you can hear me now, huh? (laughs) <laughs> yes, I can. You you sound really good this week. Thank God for the new tower. Uh, we've got to get you off that mountain. Um, this this week we have a very special guest coming on with us later in the evening. She'll be on at eight thirty, and that's Sarah Harvey. And a, she's a woman who's been fighting to protect and preserve her husband's life after he suffered a brain injury. And she'll be here to document the battle with the state of New York over her husband's life. Uh, according to Sarah, they want to start dehydrating him to death, uh, much like they did Terry Schiavo, and she is fighting to keep him alive. And I say Sarah will be joining joining us right after the break at 8.30. Uh, this week in news in the District of Criminals, the DREAM Act was beaten back once again, and I think that's five times in a row now that we have um, had to fight back to defend ourselves from this travesty. Uh, In case any of you listening are not aware of what the DREAM Act is, it was the funding of advanced education for the children of the illegal immigrants. Now, your child couldn't get any special treatment, and my child couldn't, and they surely wouldn't get a discount on tuitions or get their tuition in college paid for them. But apparently, if you're from south of the border, you can get it. And once you graduate college, then you become a citizen, and so does all of your family. Isn't that handy? Well, anyway, uh, Reed brought it up again, and they beat that back. Um, it lost and was shelved yet again, and uh, we probably won't have to face that another time, hopefully, over the next two years, but then you never know. You're dealing with thugs and crooks. So, Then also this week, um, of course, uh, great interest to most of us uh, on this broadcast is S510. And, of course, as most of you know, it was loaded into H.R. Uh, 3082, which was the House funding resolution for the government. Um, I have a problem with that right off the bat. I don't think we ought to fund them. I think we ought to take all the money away and let them fold and go home, but that's just me. Um, what they did was they knowingly reinserted Section 107, which called for taxation. 
see how that works. They pass a law, we get taxed, and it's all for our own good. Um, but they had inserted it, and this bill went to the House before the final vote in the Senate ever took place. And it went to the House with the Senate fully knowledgeable that this taxation clause uh, was unconstitutional. All taxation must originate in the House. So immediately after the Senate vote, the House blue-slipped it and said, we can't okay this bill because you you added this unconstitutional provision in there for taxation, and that has to originate with us. So everybody sighed a big sigh of relief. And, but, of course, this is a game of cat and mouse. We all know that. And this was all a set-up deal. So what happened was there wasn't enough time, of course, to get the bill back in front of the Senate and re-vote on it and everything. Well, we can't do that. So what they did was they took a shell bill. And that was a bill that had been passed out of committee, but they had no intentions of ever voting on. But it had a bill number, and it had committee approval, and that was H.R. 3082. And I can't even remember what that actually was. It's some bogus thing. And they gutted the whole bill and reinserted as an amendment all of this funding for the federal government, and it contained over $50 billion worth of earmarks. This, when our country is so far in debt, we can't see straight. We will never pay the debt off. We can't. It's been set up to make sure that we cannot pay it off. So uh, here's this funding bill, and, of course, we've got uh, Harkin claiming it's their constitutional right as senators to fund, uh, to get earmarked funding for special projects in their district, and what it is is vote buying. And I still say they should have to, if they're going to continue this practice, all the money that is spent on these earmarks, they should have to pay taxes on it. The senators should that promote it. And that their district that, has, that gets the benefit of it should also be taxed. And I think in good faith, every senator who earmarks billions or even millions of dollars for some special project in his state as a act of good faith ought to forfeit his salary. And that would help offset the cost. The rest of the country is going to have to suffer so that he can look good at home, he or she. Well, anyway, um, what they they did now, the Republicans are coming out and saying, oh, this earmarking, it's terrible, it's bad, they've done tons of it. The first funding for the Iraqi war um, was $80 billion, and $39.5 billion of that funding for the initial shock and awe attacks was earmarked for non-related projects. Most of that came from Republicans. So if you think it's those rotten lefties and those Democrats and those stinking liberals, it's the stinking Republicans that do that. They're right in there hand in hand. Now they have supposedly gutted some more of this bill and taken out all this earmark spending, or the, the Republicans are claiming they won't vote for the funding bill. Yippee. Um like I say, I think the best thing we could do is shut the whole damn works down, but that's just me. And um, But nobody, there's no word yet on whether the what is now just referred to as the Food Modernization Act, sans any bill number, is still in there. Now, what was inserted into H.R. 3082, and that started on page 185, and as Barb pointed out, and read parts of last week, when you start at uh, page 191, is the direct attack on roadside stands, farmers markets, CFSs, 
at all the little guys. And, of course, all the big guys, all the big corporate producers are off the hook and yippee-ki-yay. And um, so we don't know if that's in there. But what was in there was not S-510 with the Tesker Amendment. What was inserted into H.R. 3082 was H.R. 2749 with all of its police state provisions it's loss of rights, it's assaults on the Constitution, it's attempts to shut down private and independent agriculture of any kind, leaving only the corporations, of course. And so we don't know if that's still in there. I'm, I'm sure it will be. Uh, Harry Reid isn't going to give up that easy. He's He owes too many people. And uh, he's he promised he'll deliver, even if he has to kill us to do it. Uh, and Barb, on that, um, there was uh, one little thing that I did come up on, and Nicole Johnson sent this to me, was that um, a report came out from the CDC on Wednesday the 15th, and they had a press conference, she said, um, about the upcoming January 2011 publication of its revised and significantly lower estimates of foodborne illness. They have set on this report... Nicole says, for a year. They they knew about this report that foodborne illness had taken a nosedive. They knew about this when Durbin stood on the floor of the Senate uh, screaming and hollering about people suffering and dying, dying right now because we didn't have a bill like S5. This man knew about this report that foodborne illness was in the tank, uh, that it was steadily going down. Uh, I This stuff just drives me wild. How they do this, how do they stand up there and knowingly deceive the entire country, tell lies and getting emotional and waxing dramatic and everything else. And I think this must have been what Senator Coburn was referring to in one of his uh, statements where he said as a doctor that he could guarantee them that foodborne illness was on a decline and had been for many years. And um, but this is this is how things go in Washington in the district. Um, the USDA um, has also been trying to do an end run around the court order that said an environmental impact study had to be done on GMO beets before they could be broadly used. And they said that an environmental impact study um, takes too long. They don't want to have to do that. So I don't know what's going to happen there. Barb, you said you had an update on uh, the GMO thing. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, Marty, the the GMO beet and alfalfa, they're kind of going in tandem because they've both um, had stop orders on any sort of planting. So what um, happens with one is going to directly affect the other because there will be a set precedent Okay, now we had all these people jumping up and down and going, oh, yay, 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 we've got a court order, they can't plant them now, and then people like you and me were going, why are you rejoicing? Because this does not mean they're not going to plant. Now, we've got an article here, um, Reuters, titled, Amid Court Pressure, USDA Eyes GMO Alfalfa Compromise. This came out on December 16th. Um, that was Thursday. And it says, amid complaints of environmental harm and pressure from a federal court, U.S. agriculture regulators are considering a compromise approval 
for genetically altered alfalfa that would allow the crop to be grown with certain restrictions aimed at protecting non-GMO crops. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said on Thursday. Okay, now the the spin on this is, oh, well, this is good because the U.S. Department of Agriculture is actually giving more consideration to how these um, GMOs impact, you know, other crops around it. Baloney in a pig's eye. What they're doing is they're saying, oh, this, these crops can coexist with normal crops. No, they can't. Look what they've done so far with all the contamination that we have, and their pitiful little, oh, I'm going to put a, a little row of nothing here so that the bugs or the bees will stay in this little spot and they won't go over to this next spot. They, they won't cross that barrier. Excuse me, a bug, you're going to set up a little stop sign, the bug's going to go, oh, I better not cross that, and then turn back. I don't think so. And the bees, Oh, yeah, you're going to control where they fly. Now, alfalfa is one of the most prolific plants. I mean, it goes all over the place. So when you have that, they know very, very well that any type of coexistence is a moot point. And in the end, this contamination will take over our crops. We are not going to be able to get away from them, especially with alfalfa. And when alfalfa goes the sugar beets are going to go too. And that means almost 100% of whatever we get with sugar in it, they, it's going to be sugar beets. It's going to be GMO sugar beets. So what are we having? Then we're going to have the push on wheat. Now we've got alfalfa and sugar beets. Well, this environmental impact report must not be such a great big deal if they're going to be setting it aside and, oh, let's make this one exception. So these poor farmers can have, you know, can go ahead and do their planting. Well, how about these poor farmers get rid of the garbage, get rid of the USDA, USDA send it with Congress, kick them out, get rid of them. We were better off without them before and we'd be better off without them now. I, I just this always uh, just amazes me. We've we've battled this so many times and for several years now. And we've seen the damage GMO crops do, and studies are coming out continually about the harm to the human body from consuming genetically modified food, the attacking of your organs, your DNA, everything, and that they're allowing this to happen. And every time a GMO crop is planted. There, it's planted with the full knowledge that no control studies were ever done. There was never any intention um, to to control these crops. The the plan was all along to plant them, knowing that they are extraordinarily aggressive and that they will overtake everything in their path. Um, I don't know how we're going to – I think our environment has become so contaminated with this that there's not much um, – uh, not much we can do about it at this point except to try to stop them from planting any more of it. I don't know how you would clean it out of the environment. Um, it's just, I, I'm telling you, it, I, I get so tired of this stuff. I really do. Uh, it's like we just have to continually keep fighting. Um, we've got many, many people signing in, Barb, in support of Sarah and her husband, Gary, 
And like I say to everyone, we'll, Sarah will be coming on it right after the break at 8.30. Um, I'm, I'm really, really uh, pleased to see the number of people who are supporting her, who are here to support her. Uh, this has been just a heart-wrenching story. Um, I, I don't even know what to say. This woman has been fighting and battling to keep her husband alive. Um, to keep the state of New York from starving him to death because evidently he's using up the resources. And, Barb, didn't you face something similar to that? Yes, I did. Uh, My mother had a heart attack at home. Um, She was 86, and she went into um, what we um, affectionately call Murder West here. And there's a reason for that nickname, But she went in there, and they actually told me, the doctor came up and told me, I'm crying my eyes out, and he told me that it would be best if we let her starve because the resources could be used um, for somebody much younger that could benefit from them more. And I went through the roof, and I screamed and I yelled, and they were intent on starving this woman to death. And they would not give her any nourishment. And I had to jump up and down and scream and yell and tear that hospital apart for three days until I finally found somebody that would give her some nourishment. And it, it, it's not right. It's not right what they do. They take, you get, reach a certain age, in her case, and they decide, oh, well, it's not worth it anymore. Or you reach a certain level of care that they have to do and they – and they go through all of the person's money, and they go through all of your money, well, after they have leached you dry, sucked every last bit of money and blood out of you, then they want to throw away the carcass. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but that's how those people think, and it's a crime. It's a it's a total crime. Well, Barb, like you and I were talking earlier, um, it's one thing – to to recognize the fact that there are people walking around who think this way, but to have them actually vocalize it and and express their intent or their observation or their opinion that somehow this life has lost its value, um, so we ought to just starve it to death. Um, I think there should be a, a death with dignity clause. Um, I I don't think anyone I know from myself, I would never want to lay in a vegetative state or to be paralyzed where I couldn't speak or move or anything else. I, I would beg for someone to put me out of my misery, but do it humanely and mercifully. Um, there's other people who who feel like it's um, it's worth it to hang on at any cost. I, I'm, I personally am not one of those people, but the idea... The idea that anyone would propose starving another human being to death simply because they don't think their life is worth anything anymore is, I think, opposed to to who we are as human beings, as as what we are supposed to be. And it, this is so totally lacking in compassion or empathy or sympathy. And then to to battle this woman who is trying desperately to keep her husband alive and make sure he has adequate care to battle her continually uh, over his care and what they are willing to do for him. 
I think this is a disgrace. Uh, but isn't New York, um, they're the ones that now have the ambulance chasers. So, yep. uh, yeah, this in a sense doesn't surprise me a bit. And you have to wonder how many people are out there, how many people are, are in this predicament where there is no one like Sarah to to jump up and defend them. There is no one standing the gap trying to defend their right to life. And that's what this gets down to, the right to live. Regardless of your condition, we have a right to life. We, I think, also have the right to choose when to end it. That's my personal opinion. Uh, I think there are certain conditions that, to me, would just be objectionable. But I have to admire this woman. I have to admire what it has taken uh, to keep keep up the battle, to keep this going, to protect her husband, try to defend him um, from these people who apparently wish him great harm. And uh, I I don't know when I first heard this story, you know, it's it's un, almost unbelievable. But it's she's well documented what has happened and what has gone on, and what she's had to endure. And I can't imagine the emotional suffering of this woman, the the trauma uh, just to her, her psyche of, of having to be in this kind of battle. I, I just don't, I, I you know, this could be any one of us. This could be any one of our children. This could be our husbands, our brother, our sister. Um, and to be put in this position, and I think it says a lot about her character and who she is as a person that in these extreme situations, she will not give up the fight. And um, I think it's unfortunate there aren't enough people like that out there. Um, When Sarah comes on, she's going to be joined by um, her friend and paralegal, uh, Tim, I believe his name is Larriman. And uh, so we'll have both of them on discussing what has transpired and when Sarah comes on, she can fill us all in on the details, what has led up to today. Um, in speaking to her uh, earlier today, I find out that um, she was removed from the hospital yesterday for taking a picture of her sick husband. Apparently, this is a big damn no-no. And uh, so, it, and she did, uh, she tells me she did file a police report uh, I just, I I don't know, Barb. What do you think? What, what do you think this is happening across the country? Do you think it's happening everywhere? Is this an isolated incident? I think I feel oh, it's like happening. It's, it is happening. It's happening everywhere yeah. because I put a. This was a while ago. There was a couple, um, an older man and woman, and um, I don't know how they ended up. I can't recall how they ended up in um, the nursing home, but they ended up there. And they basically, I think they were removed from their house. Um, And I don't recall why, but it was something minor. And the state state took over, literally took over. Their house was left, everything to rot in there. They sucked them dry of their money. And there was a video of them, and you could see them. And they were they were talking. They were logical. They were, you know, they weren't a danger to themselves or others, you know, the way it appeared. I mean, they were totally logical. I mean, but this, 
idea of the state taking hold of people and all of a sudden, well, you're a property of the state, now we're going to decide when you die. And it, we're going to see that more and more with Obamacare. It's going to get worse. If we don't think it's bad now, it, it's going to get worse, a lot worse. Well, I think so, too, because part of Obamacare is, is predicated upon determining uh, where you are in your life and what your value would be to the community if they invested in your recovery. Um, how many years do you have left to work? Uh, what would your contribution to the community be if you did return to work? Um, what would the long-term medical costs be? Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be shocked to find that when this comes into full force in 2014, uh, the situation with Sarah and her husband Gary um, is going to become the rule of the day. I believe it's going to be um, the way things are done. Now, I think Sarah Palin, bimbo extraordinaire, with her death panel, death panel thing, I think that's a little extreme, and it hyped everybody up, yes. But when you get to reading this thing and you see that what's going to happen is um, panels of non-medical people are going to make decisions about what medical care you are eligible for based on your age, um, your geographic location, what the cost would be to return you to the workforce, which I don't know what workforce they're going to be returned to. We have no workforce left. Um, so the, in essence, this basically is um, a... Um, I, I would call them a death panel because this is basically what they're going to be handing down is death sentences. And so this is this is something we have to look at and we have to think about. Um, the one big hope in this is we've got 20 states uh, now suing uh, because Obamacare is unconstitutional. And why they're suing, I don't know. They they simply had to go to their governor and say, don't allow this in our state. And the governor just simply stand up and say, no, nope, we're not doing this. It's all it takes. But we don't do things that way. We always take the hard route and try to make it more than what it is. And But your governor has the right to shut the door on this stuff. That No one is required to follow a federal mandate, especially if it will cost the state money. And this, again, would be contracted through Health and Human Services, and also Homeland Security, go imagine. And um, but they have to come into your state, strike up the cooperative agreement, pay the cooperative funding, otherwise known as bribery, and then open shop in your state. And this applies to every federal mandate. There is a corresponding state agency that does the contracting, and these are corporate contracts. And once they are implemented, they are of course referred to as what they are: business plans. And because they can't pass them as law, we—I I don't know—I I wish I had some. This is one of those moments for all the stuff I think I know. Uh, I wish I had answers for this woman. I wish I had some way out for her, uh, and I don't. And that makes me feel quite inadequate. Um, but we've—we've we've got to 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 get the story out. We've got to get people informed about what is happening to this woman, to her husband, and and go from there. Um, we're going to take a little break here in just a minute. And when we do, uh, when we come back, we'll have Sarah on with us. And uh, so if you'll all just bear with us for a minute, 
um, we'll be right back. This week's PTJ Gazette Jackass Award goes to the Republicans in the District of Criminals. With Christmas right around the corner, Republicans launched their version of Bah Humbug. Knowing that 22 million working class people were out of work through no fault of their own made no difference to these royal jackasses. In what is nothing less than an attempted extortion of the public, Republicans insist that if unemployment benefits are extended for the jobless, we must extend the costly tax cuts to the upper 3%, the very people who don't need them and who have been getting a free ride to a large extent thanks to another Republican, George W. Bush. In what is being sold as a workers' holiday, the Republicans are also pushing for a 2% decrease in FICA taxes, which would cause a $120 billion drop in Social Security funding, just in time to collapse the system. You can tell it's Christmas, all right. Goodies for the wealthy, perks for the rich, and lumps of coal for the rest of us, and I'm sure there's a tax tucked in there somewhere for that. Yes, it's Christmas in the District of Criminals. And thanks to the Republicans, it will be a dismal holiday for many American families. And we're back. Um, with us is, is um, Sarah. Um, Sarah, you want to say hello and tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Hi, Marty. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming on, Sarah. Well, um, today I went down to visit my husband and I was escorted out because I took a picture of him. That's the most recent thing I can tell you today. Sarah, what was the reason they gave you for not uh, wanting you to take a picture? They they just said I couldn't take a picture of them, and I asked them if they had a court order, and they didn't have a court order. They just said it was their policy. So I asked them for their policy, and they couldn't come up with a policy either. So basically, they just um, they just said, no, don't do this. And what, did they have the guards escort you out? Um, they had a security guard come up and get me. Oh, my Lord. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about how your husband came to be in the position he's in? Hello? Um, Yes. He fell down the steps. And, you know, really, Marty, this this story is not about the accident. This is about the intrusion of government coming into my family and disrupting it and taking everything, stripping me of all my rights. Uh, You know, it's really basically. So so he fell down, fell down the stairs and suffered a brain injury. Yes. And. And as a result of that, um, was in the hospital. And yeah. how did how did it come that the the state took custody of him, Sarah? 
well, this is a long story. I better get my paralegal on to get – this is a mess, Marty. It's really a mess. It's all it's all dishonest. They just, they just barged right in. Go ahead, Tim. Hi, Marty. How are you this evening? Hi. How are you doing? Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Good. Um, Thanks for we were having trying us to. You bet. We're trying to figure out how. Um, well, maybe we, well, before we get to that, Tim, why don't you tell people your relationship to Sarah and, um, you know, what you're doing for her? I met Sarah through the National Association to Stop Guardian Abuse, which is a, um, a group of people working for guardianship reform across the country. And I'm a I'm a paralegal with 20 plus years of experience in in research and study and practice of guardianship law, and consequently I find myself uh, helping persons like Sarah and others with uh, with these guardianship cases. Oh wow, this is, this is really quite a widespread problem, isn't it? Yeah, truly it is. It's this has taken place all over the country. Uh, Sarah's case is unique in in as far as uh the condition that her her husband is is in and the the uh nature of the intervention that the state has has uh visited upon their their marriage Marty just to put it by, um back in 2007 when there was a court hearing um my attorney who also works for the county uh, you know, this is all a county organization here. Um, he said he couldn't represent me. He, he quit. He had uh, right there, he said there was a conflict of interest. So I was left. I was ambushed at the hearing. I, it was by my, I was by myself without legal counsel. And he, and, you know, I'm not, I, I've educated myself since then quite a bit through all of the experiences that I've had. But back in 2007, you know, I'm by myself, left with no attorney, and I find out that the attorney that I did have worked for the the, the county. So uh, they found all these uh, these uh, accusations that they made against me that I took my husband outside for fresh air, you know, yada yada yada, just a bunch of silly stuff and they claim that I'm unsuitable. But, you know, they tried to end his life last year, and I just cannot. It just boggles me how how they're not unfit and they're not suitable. I mean, it's against state law for them to do what they tried to do to my husband. And they're still in control of my husband, and I fear for his life every day. And, you know, I wish it wouldn't have had to come to this because all I ever wanted right from the beginning is to take my husband home and care for him. And I had to fight tooth and nail, and I will continue to fight tooth and nail for my husband. What, what I, I think what is crossing my mind here is, that, and usually in these situations, um, the people that do the, that are doing this to you, they're they're pushing the family members to take that person home to get them out of the hospital to. to the cost associated with like nursing homes, uh, special assistance, and so on is so massive, and usually they're pushing to get these people out and get the family to take them. And I'm trying to figure out what is going on here that they would consider taking custody 
as more beneficial to them and him. Well, I think it's probably for you their liability. I think it's ah. because of their liability, Marty, because my husband has gone through so many surgeries in two years. It's unbelievable. Nobody ever goes through that many surgeries as like my husband has. I mean, he's had 31 J-tube surgeries alone in a two-year time frame. How many people go through that many surgeries? You know, very rare. And, you know, I look at different things in the, the documents and stuff, and it's just appalling, just appalling. Sarah, could you speak I just, just a little ask, bit louder, please? A little bit louder? Yeah, or maybe get closer to the speaker. I, okay. I don't know, but you're really kind of weak on this end. And I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, well, my husband's had over 31 J-tube surgeries in a two-year time frame. And, you know, and all I'm doing is advocating for my husband. And what is wrong with that? And these people get upset. They know when I'm coming to the hospital, and they they know because I'm on a scheduled visit. You would at least think that they would have him ready when I come for my visit. You know, I come I come there and I see him laying flat on his back, which is against doctor's orders. I mean, he's either at a 15-degree angle or just flat on his back. And then I get a uh, heck from his guardian calling me up on a Friday, screaming at me and taking the hospital side, you know, because she works part-time for the hospital too. So, you know, we got a – there's bias going on there. I, I just I, – this is just – Escaping, Sarah. What have all these surgeries been about? What what has well, most what of them were the surgeries? It's his J tube. Yeah. I'm. Don't ask me. You know what they're all about. They left me out of his medical decisions and his medical care for a long time. Every time I call, you know, the hospital won't tell me nothing. You know, I have to call the guardian, and I call the guardian, and you know, sometimes they tell me, uh, you know, it was a fluke or it was plugged, you know, just all kinds of excuses. Who's paying for all this? Well, between my insurance company and Medicaid, I, I really don't know because I, I, I only can tell you the surgeries that I know of because of what uh, bills are being submitted to my insurance company. But what's being submitted to Medicaid, that's another question because I don't get that information. Somebody's playing the money, um, the money angle here. That that's that's obvious, and it's these people just make me sick. Because, um, well, like Oregon is a right to die state, but they, when they tried to um, kill my mother off, <clears throat> one of the reasons is that she had nothing. Um, she was living with me, and she basically um, had nothing, so they really couldn't get anything out of her. Uh, to keep her alive, no incentive there. Um, so they basically just wanted wanted her dead. And they, and then afterwards, I got a a letter saying for me to inventory her property that they were going to take possession of her property. I got so mad, so mad that I called him up and said, you know what? Her property is sitting in a little 8 by 10 room. She's got all sorts of clothes in there. 
lots of depends and everything like that, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll box it all up and I'll have it on your front doorstep. And they didn't, for some reason, they stopped me right there and they didn't want that. Don't know why. They took everything else. Um, but it all boils down with these these people. I can't. I, I have a hard time even calling them people with money. So they are sucking money out of somewhere in order to do this. And as as soon as they start talking about wanting to kill um, somebody off, that means that they're getting to the end of the money train. Yeah. As well, they're either getting the end of the money. Tra- well. You got a point there because it was like when they wanted to end my husband's life last year, I did not have him on my insurance. I took him off, and I put him back on that that same year. I just so now since I, I, put I, back I on just my... don't know how they can they can take. I mean, you're legally married to this man. I'm, I'm I assume uh, not in New York State. They... You're not. <laughs> Yeah, you really? <laughs> well, right? they took all my rights away. You know, I have well, no say. I mean, you know, you think that uh, being that. married was a advanced directive, but it's not. I I just don't. How can they do? And this actually went through the court, Sarah. What the divorce? No, no, no the, um, the the custody issue. Did it actually go through the court? Well, I, it, it, you can call it a custody issue. I really don't know what it is. Yeah, it went through the courts, and I've been fighting ever since then. Let me, let me explain I mean, this. Okay. Uh, Marty, what happened was – this is, this is Tim again. Uh, what yeah. happened was in, in April of 2006, Sarah filed for guardianship of her husband. This was purely a civil civil court proceeding that – didn't involve anybody but Sarah and the uh, most immediate family members of Gary, his heirs. As the court proceeding progressed, there had been discussions of an agreement that everybody was going to accept Sarah as guardian, and there was a distribution of some, some property and some stock that was going back to other members of the family and such. And once that tentative agreement was was made... Suddenly, Gary's attorney, Gary's appointed attorney was with the New York Mental Hygiene Legal Services, and he files a petition to reopen the hearing on appointing Sarah as the guardian. Never mind, he had agreed to that appointment two months previously. So the court reopens this this court hearing, and in the midst of the legal posturing, Sarah had let go one attorney out of sheer frustration, and she was uh, recommended to go see this other attorney. And this other attorney, the day of the court hearing, he walks into court and tells Sarah that he has a conflict of interest and he cannot represent her. And it turns out that this man was a part-time attorney for the county. Well, when he left the room, sitting at the table was the county attorney who had he had he had placed himself in the middle of this purely civil court proceeding, and he just appeared out of nowhere. And through the course of his presence in this court proceeding, 
the Department of Social Services ended up with guardianship of Sarah's husband. Now, under New York law, the only way the Department of Social Services can can acquire guardianship of a person or an adult is if the Department of Social Services brings the petition, brings the action as a adult protective or um you know, uh, uh, an adult in need of services types of type of thing, much like the child welfare cases you see, where the the department itself petitions for the guardianship. That didn't happen in this case. Suddenly, on February the first, two thousand and seven, at this court hearing, sitting in the courtroom is the Department of Social Services. They didn't file motions to intervene in the case. They didn't bring the case. They just showed up. And having showed up, they ended up with guardianship of her husband. It, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in in the years I've looked at these cases. And they they weren't they weren't present before. There was no interest from these people prior to this. No, none whatsoever. And they just somehow coincidentally show up in court on this day. Right, just coincidentally on the day that her attorney is abandoning her because of his conflict of interest, suddenly the county attorney is sitting in the court hearing. He wasn't he yeah. wasn't even on any of the petitions. He he was nowhere near the case until the day that this switcheroo took place. <laughs> well is there is there something was there well, see did, my husband's attorney some, pulled him out. Let, let's hear her question. Okay. What was oh, your question, okay. Marty? Well, I was wondering, see, it seems to me, knowing how all these things, there's always a catalyst. And there's always some little something that might seem like nothing to everybody else but was important to them uh, that we tend to pass by. And I keep getting this uneasy feeling that something else was at work here. That, well, let, me, let, me, let me explain this part to you. Sarah's okay. husband was in a county-owned nursing home. She was trying to have him move to other facilities where he would receive better care. I'm, 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 you are wrong. I'm I've wrong. been fighting to get him home from day one. I, not, I, I, not, I understand that. No. I understand that. But at the time, there was there was some discussion of uh, the Guthrie Institute and and what was the other hospital? Not Guthrie. It was Kessler. Kessler, the Kessler Institute. To That's get him right. Rehabilitated. Right for some re- rehabilitation and further evaluation, and the county uh-huh. because they were they were providing Gary residential residential tr- uh, services at the county nursing home, they they simply didn't want to lose a resident. They didn't want to lose. The they didn't want to lose the revenue stream. This is just sick. It's okay. just sick. I. Yeah, so, uh, you know, so it goes it goes a step further in that once as time passed and and Gary ends up now in the hospital where he's been for the last uh, year plus in a community hospital, we now find out that the community hospital is represented by the law firm that represents the county that represents the Department of Social Services. So there's there's three lawyers all from the same law firm making sure that their clients are are all being paid. 
that's just a, a, absolutely amazing. This sounds like somebody saw a big money train there and apparently looked at Sarah as an obstacle to that. That's, that that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and given that she was unrepresented by counsel, uh, the the mental hygiene attorney could be quoted in one court transcript as saying, "These are the clients we like," and, and I take oh that to God. mean the the easy pickings, the the, the yeah. long term care that we can we can put them into a facility and just bill Medicare and Medicaid yeah. and private insurances until the uh, until the this cows come home. Sick. Yeah, I mean, but I, that's, just that's the only thing. That's the only conclusion. Is yeah, nine, the only $10,000 a month. Marty, he doesn't even get rehabilitation. No therapy, no nothing. He just lays there. Right. Is there any chance at all for his rehabilitation, Sarah? I have hope. You know, how how do I know? I mean, he's, he's yeah. drugged up morphine. I don't, you know, how do yeah. I know what he's at or anything when he's when they keep him drugged up all the time. And they've controlled all the information concerning Gary for since this began in, in March of 2007. Uh, so there's there's really no way until there's a medic, uh, an independent medical evaluation to determine what uh, where Gary can be restored to. He, he receives absolutely no rehabilitative care whatsoever at present. No physical therapy, no sensory therapies, no, they don't get him out of bed and put him in a chair. They don't move him from his room. Well, he's pretty much isolated, Marty. They won't let friends or family come in to visit. There's only like maybe five or six people on the list that are allowed to visit him. Oh, but allowed. They, yeah, they won't, they, they're isolating him. Oh, I was, I was well, told you know, I was not allowed to visit him. When I oh. asked what the... When I was told when I when I was told this, I asked what the criteria for being approved was, and they couldn't tell me what the criteria was, but they assured me that I possessed none of those qualities. Excuse <laughs> <laughs> me, Christmas. Right, right. You know the yeah, thing they, is, when they get pe- get people into these situations, the first thing, and I and I know this historically is true. The first thing they do is put them on a, what they call a handler's dose of drugs. And right. basically what that does is keeps them in a almost a semi-comatose state um, so that they're no trouble to anyone. Right. And, and of course, the drug management. You know, it's, it's easier yeah. to manage a patient when they're just laying there in a, in a stupor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so... And you you have to wonder if he's he's actually uh, unable to communicate, or if he's been put into a state of hypoxia uh, to prevent we, we him from no communicating. We have no idea of knowing. We have no idea that, of knowing yeah. until until Gary is removed from their care, custody, and control, and and detoxes and has some independent evaluations done. There's there's no way of knowing what level of rehabilitation that that Gary could possibly uh, uh, oh my attain. God. The the initial reports is, on Gary's accident said that he would be fine. The the initial report he, from the night of the accident, when he was admitted to the hospital, listed him in serious condition, said that he would be fine and that he was breathing on his own. 
few months later and after how having, did we get to yeah well, how did we good, get to this point where he he's he's in the state that he's in how did we jump from he'll be fine to this current condition how did that happen well, the only thing we can uh, we can surmise at this point is something happened at the county nursing home that uh, the deterioration. Oh my God! Right. Uh, right, and this is where I it just, all began. I can't when stand this. <laughs> when Gary was at the county nursing home, his care was substandard, and naturally, his wife was concerned, and she was taking issue with the staff and, and, and raising her concerns with staff, and then they begin to retaliate. They start restricting her visitations. They start putting limitations on her ability to, to move around the facility and such and telling her she can't speak to other, other residents and family members, and all without court orders and court intervention, mind you. Okay, then... Uh, the the complaints to the to the state health department begin and the retaliation gets ratcheted up even higher and and it becomes this feud over somebody who wants their loved one cared for and a facility or an institution that doesn't want the controversy so they continually oppress and retaliate and oppress and retaliate and mind you, the county nursing facility is represented by the county attorney who represents the Department of Social Services. Which, you know, I mean, it, there's this big circle of of uh, of interest around the money and around the body. Yes. The yeah. body is money. The Medicare ID yeah. number is money. It's a guaranteed stream of income. Literally, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, they have kidnapped Gary Harvey. He is being held for ransom, reward, or otherwise. I have he is to a agree medical with you. hostage. I have to agree with you. Uh, I, I don't know what else you could call this. Uh, this is uh, this actually is is terrifying to listen to, because it could happen it, it to any terrifying. one of us at any time. It is, you know, terrifying. and. It is, because like I say any one of us could find ourselves in this situation, and we may not have an advocate for us such as Sarah is for her husband. Um, actually, Marty, in the motion filed in court a couple weeks ago, a motion to remove the guardian as uh, for cause as being unfit, we we actually alleged, and it fits the statute, that this is an act of domestic terrorism. Good for you. I, I, and it is. It is. Uh, it is an act of domestic terrorism. Yes, it is. Under both New York law and federal law. They've kidnapped Gary. And it's extortion. Well, it, yeah, there's extortion. a host of financial things involved. But, uh, yes. believe that they could do this to coerce a population or influence a government uh, and government policy is, is what's really frightening to me. Having watched the Terry Schiavo event go down years ago, to believe that government, through its employees and through its agencies, would have this mentality that they could uh, obliterate family ties and the, the marriage vows and take custody of a family member to influence public policy is pretty frightening. 
Well, well Marty, it is, and they're doing it. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, you know, if Gary were to come home, it would save the taxpayers thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, it's like $659 a day just for room and board at that hospital. That's over $20,000 a month. It's not going to cost him room and board here at home. You know, you well, that's that. what. That's what I don't understand. You know, historically, they've always tried to get family members to step in, to step up, to, to, you know, take the the responsibility for that injured individual. You know, to take care of them themselves, and to see this complete turnaround. Well, and they I put do a think DNR on him. What? They put a, a, it's a. To me, it's an illegal DNR. Is what they put on him. Well, it is illegal. You know, well, they have full I, intentions I of not saving this man's life, and they're still his guardian. Oh my God! Yeah. You know, I just and I hate to even bring this up because it's morbid, and I and I'm sorry, I, but I keep thinking about an article I read here recently about. Um, they they've turned us into human capital. They refer to us as human. We've been commodified, and about right. how the human body is now worth more dead than it is alive. True. And yeah. uh, I can't help but think that somewhere this this works into this uh, that there's an ion orbiting. Um, that there is something else at work here. There, There is something they are anticipating regaining more from by ending this man's life and and sustaining the cost for the time being. Uh, when you weigh it out, see, they're always looking for, for more money, more money. And then I, holy cow, this just creeps me out. Something else that appears in a lot of our state statutes, Marty, under their social services uh, uh, code is that there's a, there are government fundings for the administration of these programs. So, for example, if the guardian spends two hours on a particular task and bills the, bills the ward's estate $200, let's say, 50% of that $200 the guardian collects from the estate. The Department of Social Services gets 50% of that charge from the state, and the other 50% comes from the federal government. So the agency is being funded by the administrative task that the guardian is performing. Does that make sense? Are you following that? Yes. Yes, it, I, it does because they're doing so the same thing with the prisoners. So there's an incentive in the social services laws to create this labyrinth of administrative services that generates its own income. That's Change how they're the funding the Department of Social Services. I just can't. Um, right, we're, and, we're and take interestingly it. enough, I read some things the other day in this uh, New York statute that each district, each social service district has to have so many demonstration cases and to, in order to qualify for these programs. So if there's only three bodies in District A and they need five, they're going to go out and find two more so they can participate in the grant program. This is just sick. 
we're going to take a, a break here, uh, Tim and Sarah. And when we come back, we have so many people in the chat room and they want to call in. So once our break is over, we'll be taking phone calls and uh, for your comments and questions. And the call-in number is 1-917-388-4520. That's 1-917-388-4520. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Apparently, we're going to be back right now because that won't work. <laughs> uh, uh, we've been having so much trouble with blog talk, it's not even funny. So, uh, the we'll don't want us gone. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. This is this is quite interesting, frightening, but interesting. Uh, like oh, it truly really is. Call and, in. and you you hit the nail on the head when you said that the the human capital element of of how our government views our people anymore. Yeah, you know, it amazes and me that's, when I that's was a how they man. see us. They don't, they don't see any value in us um, as human beings. We are things to be bartered and traded and sold and used, and it everything is now based on what are we worth? What are right. we worth? Right. And it, not as human beings, but financially, what are we worth? So we'll be taking your calls now. If you want to call in, all of you that wanted to call in, it's one nine one seven three eight eight four five two zero. And uh, Sarah, as as you've gone through this, I can't imagine the anger, the rage uh, over this, and especially being denied access to your husband. And then you you did try to get a second opinion, did you not? I've tried over and over and asked and asked and asked for a second opinion, and they will not let a second. They will not let an outside doctor come in and take a look at my husband. So I truly believe that they're they're scared of something. I mean, you know. Yeah. If there's nothing to hide, then why don't they just tell me? Why don't they just tell me what's going on with my husband? Why don't they just give me the medical records and let me see for myself? And I mean, all I want them to do is be honest with me. I don't think and they, they can't can do, even that. do that. No, I don't think they can. I think if they were honest with you, you'd find out that something happened at that facility he first went to, and those places are notorious for their horrendous care and abuse and everything else, and I would imagine something happened to him there, and it was it became necessary for them to take control of him so that you couldn't find out what had happened. As, um, I, might, as I might understand this, Marty, they, uh-huh. they allowed him to dehydrate. And then oh, he became impacted in his bowels. And right. they they literally fed him to the point of overfilling him. Oh my God. Right. Oh right. we've got a caller on here from area code uh five seven four. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yes. Do you have a question or a comment? Uh, just a comment. I've been a healthcare provider for 30 years and have never seen a case as bizarre and upside down as this one. And it just would seem as though um, there's either a cover-up from medical error or that Gary outlived life expectancy, and it w- it went against uh, a lot of, of of what they had been judging against, as that his passing would come early rather than later. Well, have so the you ever, is, have you ever are, seen, are we covering up error 
or is Gary outlived their projections and now it's too late to go back and attempt to rehabilitate him after all this time has lapsed? So you think maybe possibly poor judgment uh, or an error in um, prognosis? Well, the first part was that if he was expected to have a positive outcome on the initial injury, what happened to that expectation? What were the procedures uh, initiated at that time? And why wasn't aggressive therapy initiated at that time to give him back as much independence as possible as opposed to keeping him in a vegetative state? Oh, that just... Uh... I, I don't I don't know what to even say about this and this is like I say this is terrifying. To me personally this is terrifying because any one of us could find ourselves in this position. And uh Sarah, the idea as you said they had put up a do do not resuscitate resuscitate a DNR. Right. Uh how can they possibly do that? That that is a personal decision. Um, I'm I'm here in Minnesota, and I know that when you go in the hospital, if, if they'll ask you if you want a DNR, but if you don't have one, they will just keep going to keep you alive, or at least they did. I'm afraid now of what they're doing. Um, but how can how can someone else possibly issue another person, even if they have guardianship? How can they issue a do not resuscitate? They did, Marty. Don't ask me how they did it because I went to a mediation meeting with the ethics panel, the committee, and my husband's guardian and the doctor. And they're all pointing fingers at each other that, you know, the commissioner told them to do that and the doctor said that this one told them to do that and the other one told them that this one told them to do that. You know, and in all this time with the questioning going back and forth, uh, they record, they recorded the whole conversation, the whole meeting. And when my attorney asked them for a copy of the the uh, meeting, the hospital wouldn't give it to my attorney, but she did give it to the other side. So the other side was able to have a copy of that recording. And there was a lot of uh, lot of uh, questions in that DNR that nobody wants to admit oh. to. I'll be darned. Um, to our caller, um, we, would you mind do? Can you give us a name, or would you rather not? Or uh, My name is David. I'm from Indiana. And okay. I have been following uh, this chat, and I sure appreciate it, because it's actually quite scary and appalling that uninterested parties, people totally dissociated uh, with Gary, have control over his outcome and not his legal wife, who is paying also medical bills. And she has not been provided uh, her her rights at all as a married partner, the one that, that stands the most to lose is now being pushed away. I don't know how we legally uh, can sit here and let that happen. Under whose jurisdiction, what rights in a country of freedoms uh, as though we have? And then you see this case, and it makes you question it all. Wow, this is just... It's just amazing to me. Uh, it really is. Um, what I'm trying to figure out is, Sarah, how can you be forced to pay bills for your husband, carry him on your insurance, and and be held responsible for his bills, and yet be denied the right 
to oversee his care. See, I don't understand that at all. If they wanted to take custody, then they by by law have actually taken responsibility for him. How can you be held responsible for those bills if they won't let you have any control over his care? I do that on my own, Marty. Oh, I hold the insurance on him in hopes that I will get him home. Oh, wow. This is just... I mean, I'm doing what benefits Gary and what Gary's wishes are. Okay. Was there ever a time after this injury, Sarah, that after he was injured, was he ever conscious? Was he ever able to speak? You know, was there any time... There was some uh, after the injury going on, and I had a lot of hope for my husband. I mean, he was very active, following, tracking. Um, you know, I have a memory uh, magic board that I wrote on, and I would write on it and ask him questions, and he'd respond to that. He'd shake his head yes and no. I'd throw a ball up in the air, and he would try and catch it. He liked uh-huh. watching football. That's We watch odd. Uh, New York Giants all the time, and, you know, now I can't even do that. Last year I couldn't even visit with them at Christmas time. They restricted me because I took them off my insurance, and they made a bargain that if I put them back on my insurance, they'd restore my visits, and they restored it to a measly six hours a week after I put them back on my insurance. Well, that was real nice of them, wasn't it? Yeah. Jimmy Christmas. You know, uh, I've been that- I've been supervised every cent, you know. I mean, I've been supervised for over three, four years now it's going on. And, you know, they still think that I'm a harm or a threat. I really don't know what's going on with these people. They're the ones that tried to they end his life, not me, and they're still in control. I just, It just flabbergasts me how this can happen. They said why, you why were a harm. They're still in control of my husband. They said you were a threat or a, or a armor to your husband? I mean, they're the ones that committed the crime. I mean, it's against New York State law to even try and starve and dehydrate anyone. And, and nobody there in New York has stepped up and said anything about other than you and you, the people battling with you. No one has stepped Bobby forward and, and said we have Schindler to came up and we had a press conference last year. I mean, he's a big supporter of mine. Uh-huh. Oh, you my know, God. I mean, he just, it, it just frazzles him, too, how how this can happen. This is just... Uh, just don't understand it. Genocide, <laughs> I guess. Well, it is a form, and social engineering. And, you know, the thing is, Sarah, in the long term, what they'll do with a case like this is they'll use it as a precedence. And just like they did with Terry Schiavo, um, well, they'll say, well, we did it in this instance, and, you know, it was the best thing we could have done, and they'll, um, and they'll use it as evidence of their right to continue to do it. That's, M- Marty, this is Tim again. That was, the, that was the, uh, the substance of the domestic terrorism uh, allegation, is that they are, in fact, you. using Gary as a test case to influence government policy and to coerce the population into accepting that this is how end-of-life decisions will be made. 
that the government will make the end-of-life decisions on behalf of everybody by virtue of its economic uh, Your commodity worth. Mm-hmm. Your yeah. human commodity worth. Right, right. Uh, You're a life not worth it. living. We can't spend yeah. any money on you because you will not. the return on the investment will not be beneficial to society. Gary will yes. not be returned to the workplace that he will ever pay taxes again. So consequently, his contribution to the gross national product is zero. There's no sense spending taxpayer money on a, on a, on a no-return investment. Oh, my God. This is just uh, – you can just see the handwriting on the wall here that this is what they're anticipating doing. You're right. This is a test case. And I, I saw this with – with the Terry Schiavo case going on in Florida uh, years ago, the the idea that Florida being the retirement capital of our country and all the elderly people that were in, uh, that are constantly in Florida and the value of their of their uh, of their estates, uh, huge huge opportunity for the government to uh, intervene and take control of the assets redistribute them according to their wishes and do as they wish to the to the persons that they take uh, care and custody of. I just huh. Well, and that's the thing too, it isn't they don't just take their life. They take everything they got. Right, and um, they take their families and and you know, Gary and Sarah are not that old. My goodness, you know, uh to think that in the prime of their lives, this intervention has ripped them apart and kept them apart and and dismantled what they were working together to to build uh, for their future and for each other. And to think that the government can come in and just tell you that, you know, your marriage vows don't mean anything, we're going to disassemble your marital estate and we're going to put it into a pool of, of trust funds and we're going to dictate how many dollars uh, the spouse gets from the estate of the other spouse is it's it's ludicrous. I mean, it defies a it defies a, a historical principle of our property laws and our marriage laws and our family law in this country that's uh, fundamental to all of us. These are huge liberty interests involved. Yeah, so you can see where it is that uh, there's a a lot of angles that are going to play off of this. Um, We see this happening across the country in various situations where they're going after longstanding recognized rights and um, and trying to establish what I call court precedents, not legal, but court precedents for saying – um, we're striking this down. This doesn't stand anymore. Uh, it's for the greater good. It's for national security. Um, so if a few people have to die, uh, so what? Because it's for more of them will be benefited by this death. Uh, you see this stuff just happening all over the place in various things. Um, we've got another caller here. Um, who have we got? This area code nine seven eight. Hello. Hi, I think it might be me. I didn't realize I was on. <laughs> okay. I'm 978. 
I'm um, okay. It's a Skype in number. I'm re- that's from Massachusetts, but I'm really in Costa Rica, and okay. I've just tuned in. I've just tuned okay. in. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's, thank you. Uh, Is that Barb Johnson? Uh, I I don't. Who's know. on the other side? Is that Barb? Who asked? Uh, yes, it is. This is Tim Larman. Oh hi. How hi are Barb. You? How are you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm batting for you guys. You know, we're all looking for the same thing. We need justice has to be restored. It's long since been gone. Due process, equal protections. I want to get uh, immunity, rid of immunity for judges. I mean, people are so hurt, they don't have any remedy. The First Amendment not only gives free speech, it says you have a right to seek a remedy from the court. And when people go there, they don't get any remedy and no relief. I mean, their cases generally are dismissed on some technicality. And most people can't afford lawyers, and so they usually screw up on the complaints. I mean, it's just a mess. And the, the, bottom, the bottom line of due process is fundamental fairness. I'm working on a case now. Not legally, of course, because I was disbarred for my political opinions. But <laughs> nevertheless, long distance, I am working. I dare them to come and get me in Costa Rica. Um, and it's clear that the judge was making decisions um, that overruled fundamental fairness. Um, I'll give you just a very, very briefly so I don't talk too much. It's about four, I'm helping four Native Americans who have been in prison for 16 years. I have read 10 days of transcripts and every boxes of of other pleadings and files and videos and all kinds of things. And there is no question they were screwed. <laughs> There's no, nothing else, no other word is appropriate to use. I have to apologize if it's offensive language. But they are innocent. I would bet my bottom dollar they are innocent. So there were arguments. Uh, their lawyers were appointed because they had no money. Now, who appoints them? The court or the judge. The judge appoints the lawyers. Aren't those lawyers really going to challenge various rulings throughout the trial given by that judge? Probably not. They come from a small area, sparsely populated. They're going to be in front of that judge almost every day, if, if, certainly a few times a week. I've checked it out. It's that small an area. Now, but those were the appointed defense counsel. Did, were those men properly represented? No. And that, for instance, they did two things that were outstanding. In federal court, because they're Indians, they have to be tried in federal court. And federal court has a, a rule 4112, which says you have to file certain motions a certain time before trial. These guys, four, four um, attorneys, did not File it timely. Why? I can see one screwing up and not filing, but the other three not saying anything. I can see two not filing, but the other two not saying anything. It went on like that. Then there was another thing also that 
Uh, now, mind you, I'm I'm reading reports from other people saying that the judge is having ex parte communications with the FBI, the Bureau of Indian Affairs agent. I mean, there's a lot of you know funny stuff going on in the background right now. I'm interested. Was he having an affair with the uh, U.S. Attorney? <laughs> Someone raised that. I don't know. I've asked the thorough. I wasn't there 16 years ago, so I don't know what they looked like. But that's come from several sources, so I'm asking for descriptions. But um, the point is, is when a court appoints a defense counsel, isn't there a conflict of interest? And clearly, the judge could have very well, because there is a, in the Brady decision, uh, written, uh, I think, no, actually, I think it might have been a, U.S. v. Frank DeVoe, D-E-V-O-E. Justice Douglas wrote, what about fundamental fairness? What about fairness? In other words, there, there might be the technicality of the Rule 412 or Rule 2255. There are lots of them in the federal court. There might be technicalities that would keep a person from having their motion heard. But sometimes you have to consider, well, wait a minute. Are, are we putting, this is a common phrase, are we putting uh, procedure over substance? Now that's In many, many cases, we discuss that in the legal community. And what had happened in this case, and happens all the time, is that they are putting procedure over substance. And substance, of course, is fundamental fairness. I should say that the other way around. Fundamental fairness is the substance of a case. Or if you follow that rule, which was just passed by some committee, some anonymous committee, okay, should we really let that rule overrule fundamental fairness no we want justice so it gets very complicated and uh I, I, there aren't that many people unfortunately who look at it from from this from my perspective you know um but it it it's far reaching and you can look at so many cases it's very horrifying it's grotesque you know, it's like Stephen King owns the court. Horrifying horror fiction. You know, is there any reasonable purpose to horror fiction? I say no. But by God, if you go into those courts today, it's almost as if Stephen King is running them. Bad, bad news. Anyway, I've talked too much. No, you haven't. No, I, you I, have been done. Um, I've enjoyed listening to you and. Um, and um, I'm getting a terrible echo. <laughs> oh, are you? Yes. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Maybe it's the Skype thing. I'm not no, sure. I'm on Skype, no, too. On Skype we get too. this every, we once, get in this every once in a while. Uh, could be weather-related. We have beautiful weather down here, but we don't know what's in between here and California. No, we've got it. We've, oh, got, we've, a got, got, we've got a huge cold front in up here. Do you? Um, no, I, w yes. I won't make uh, you yes. jealous, then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect here. I am. I am. You have a book out uh, that uh, called "Behind the Black Robes." Yes, that's my book. 
Okay. Um, where can people obtain that? Well, they can obtain it on Amazon. They might be, I noticed that there are sales, what they call distribution sales. So I'm assuming libraries or bookstores are ordering. But I think people, since it's not that big, I think people have to ask their bookstore, please get it for me. Now, Amazon has several ways of selling the paperback where the publisher set the price at twenty three ninety five. I thought that was steep, but that's what they set it for. When Kindle came along, I was able to set the price and I set it at nine ninety nine, which is just one of the lowest prices on Kindle you can find. It might have come lower since then, I don't know. But I said, Well goodness, people aren't going to be able to afford the Kindle machine. Although that has come down in price and there are several versions of it. What I did find remarkably Amazon does make the 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 electronic book available. You can download it straight to your computer. You do not have to buy a Kindle. Again, you can't take it to bed with you unless you have it come in on a laptop, you know. So you don't have the feel of the paper and you, you know and so forth. But you can highlight it. It does allow a number of things, and it does come straight to your computer which is terrific, and that means you don't have to worry about um, buying the Kindle. So, but nine ninety nine is not a bad buy, considering. If I may interject here, this is Tim again, Marty. That's, it's an excellent yes. book. Barb has, uh, and I met Barb having bought her book and, and posted a, a review for her. Uh, excellent book, just chocked full of very valuable information and insights in uh, based upon her experience in the court systems for years in dealing with what are these protective proceedings that the state and uh, county governments are using against families, whether it be in the children side of the law or whether it's, whether it's the adult side of the protective services. Very good book. I recommend it for anybody who's uh, anywhere near any of these cases. Well, you know, Thank one you. of the things in all of this, um, I've been working with people uh, in an unrelated field who are working pro se, trying to defend themselves from um, the government in the agricultural sector and this attempt to take land, take property, to deny people their rights. And Wisconsin, of course, is the test state for all of this. And what I'm seeing across the board is this massive movement of people who are educating themselves in the law. I'm sure, Sarah, you've gotten quite an education in it yourself, and in how to defend themselves. And what I, I find sad is that if you go to an attorney, that's the last place you're likely to get any actual representation and whatever you do get is going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars to end up in a court where a judge has already decided against you and we see this happening all the time uh, and this this flagrant disregard for the law for people's rights uh, that goes on these courtrooms uh, this this is really starting to also frighten me that that this is so widespread and so accepted and people will say well the law says you can't do this and I have my rights but when you get into that courtroom you find out you have nothing and you surely most times don't even have a defense unless you get someone 
who is devoted to a cause like you are, Tim, um, and you get someone working as a pro se where they're representing themselves and they've educated themselves in procedure and filings and all of this. Um, and and when I look at it, I've got several law books now where I'm trying to get myself up to speed. And what it looks like to me as I read through these things is a system of trickery and deceit. Oh, absolutely. And right. Yeah, it. Absolutely. It's not about the law. It's not about your. It's how to deceive you, how to defraud you, right. um, how to right. make the system so complicated and so full of tricks and curves and spins and turns. And if well, you don't in, jump in up and down like three Sarah's, times, what they end up doing is they they turn the law against her in a retaliatory fashion, where she wants to actually. For example, ten days ago or so, uh, the county attorney issues a letter and he completely withdraws all of Sarah's visitations because of her behaviors over the last several weeks. Well, her behaviors over the last several weeks have simply been the free exercise of her First Amendment right to petition her government for redress of her grievances. So because she's exercising her rights, the court is used, and the power of the court and the power of the county offices are used in retaliation against her for exercising your rights. I got yanked in front of the judge the other day and took a heck of a tongue lashing because of my Internet postings, and the judge went absolutely ballistic reading into the record what I had written on the Internet that had a religious overtone to it, and there wasn't even a motion in front of her. She did this on her own volition. I don't even know where she where she even got the information. What judge is allowed to go on the internet and take somebody's free exercise of, of free speech and then turn it against them in a courtroom? It was almost comical to be truthful to you. <laughs> well, that's what I had. I mean, when I was disbarred, the essentially the only um, evidence. Now there were no. There was supposed to be a trial, but they kicked the public out because several dozen had come. They kicked them out, and. Um, so I refused to stay, of course. They did send me the transcript. Now, I knew that I could have no defense witnesses because they, they quashed all my trial witness subpoenas ahead of time. So I knew I had no witnesses, and they would not, and they had no witnesses against me, none, none at all. So the only, the only exhibits that I saw, other than a few crazy court things, uh, you know, that they made up themselves, were were my were about three dozen files from my website. And I said, I had told them ahead of time, I said, my website is done in HTML so that anyone across the world can copy them and use them just as a as boilerplate, as a format, because I used to have questions from people. I have such and such a type of an appeal. What do I do? How, what do I say? What is the outline? And they could use that. And on my in my cases, I tended to use yeah, a lot of Massachusetts cases, but a lot of U.S. Supreme Court, which is good for all 50 states. So just find the equivalent in your state if it exists and add it to it. Now, so, but anybody can change it at any time. 
with no difficulty. So they needed those, what they copied, and they couldn't copy them right. It was hysterical, actually, to see what they copied down. Half of pages, three quarters. I mean, it was just crazy. But skipping over that foolishness, um, they clearly needed someone to authenticate those documents for my website. And I was, my website is huge. And I was not going to reread thousands of pages that they copied to say that they were correct. I would have to compare them to the original. So when they uh, ordered the public out of the room for the trial, of the hearing room, uh, and it wasn't in a real court, it was just in a hearing room, uh, when they ordered them out, and I said, well, I'm sorry, I knew that they had manipulated the transcript previous to that, and I had written proof from their own certified transcript, and I because the, um, the hearing officer had told the stenographer to go off the record when I spoke and back on when he spoke. I had that in a transcript from an earlier hearing. So I didn't trust them with no witnesses. They could change that transcript. They could make up and say that I said anything. And from time to time, I swear, not in courtroom. But if they added it, many people would say, oh, sure, that's Bob talking, you know. So I didn't dare, <laughs> I didn't dare stay. I really didn't dare stay. And I told them I don't trust you with a 10-foot pole common saying, and I'm leaving too. So they had no one to authenticate those alleged uh, exhibits, okay, but they accepted them as evidence as exhibits in the case. Uh, I wasn't In, in there. Sarah's case, uh, and this is Tim again, in Sarah's case, they have nothing but innuendo and hypothetical, hypothetical speculation of future possibilities of of neglect or, you know, some misgiving that might happen in the future. It'd be yeah, like I they said, well, Sarah, you know, we have to take your husband from you because next week you might rob a bank, you know. Good God. Well, I mean, I, I've heard something similar to that on another case. I don't know this, Sarah, and I don't know her husband, but I certainly can believe it because the same thing happened to me out of those thousands of pages I said can you I remember writing a motion for them to identify what in each of those pleadings and most of that website was part of my Drano series in which I put in which I uploaded federal pleadings pleadings that I had filed in federal court and, and so that they were perfectly fine and I said tell me which parts of them offend you or offend the rules in some way. And, of course, they never did. They couldn't identify. They simply could not identify. It went on like that. So I can believe if this poor woman is a layperson and helping herself, I mean, she's doomed from the beginning. There is totally futile exercise that she has to indulge in. It's a shame. It, it, it's horrific. It must be changed. This they is why I'm. Even tell Sarah what what steps she has to take in order to regain her rights. Never mind, she they haven't told her what was wrong that they stripped her of her rights. Good God, where they is just, she located? In which state is this all happening? New York State. New York State. She in state or federal court? Uh, in state court at present, Barb. Good gosh. 
I mean, it, it's just horrendous. This is why I thought I thought long and hard, and I came down with the abolishment of, or the abolition, whatever word you prefer, of judicial immunity because they bestow qualified immunity onto others, and they bestow absolute immunity on other people who work with them in the court. You know, the, psychi- the psychiatrists who are paid whores, the psychologists who are paid whores, the doctors, the family service people, the guardians ad litem, uh, masters at law, there are different names for them in different states. And those people can also uh, escape liability. They should be vulnerable to escape liability. They become negligent. They have a date on Friday night. They don't want to miss miss that. They don't want to make out on it, so they make quick uh, negligent decisions. I mean, sometimes just not caring. They don't have to care. There's no incentive for them to care. They know nothing is going to happen to them because they are protected by the court. So you get people, it doesn't matter whether it's a family law case or a land case. I mean, these are people who are protected by judge-made law for the most part. In some states, I mean, they do differ from, we have 50 states, and the laws do differ a little bit from state to state. But this is, for the most part, with few exceptions, is judge-made law. Judges are not there to make law. Okay? It's very simple. So if you get rid of judicial immunity, I thought the others, the other immunities would also fall by the wayside. We need a case. One, if we get one or two judges... Not, I'm not talking about the ones, there was one somewhere who was masturbating on the bench. I mean, I'm not talking for something ridiculous like that. <laughs> and I'm, I know there was one, I, I nearly died when I heard it. Then there was another one, you know, who kept on getting into car accidents because he was drunk. I'm not talking about those obvious kinds of cases. I'm talking about the ones who are making a mess of our justice system, you know. And um, if we get one or two of those, the others will fall into line. The rest will be easy. But we've got to join up and go after uh, the most obviously bad ones. Of course, in Massachusetts, they're appointed for life, at least until the age of 70. We can't get rid of them. The rest of you can vote them out and vote other bad or good ones in. We can't. And I think... New Hampshire, um, New Hampshire, one of the others. There's one other state also that puts them in for life. We don't have that option, and most of them should should go. There are a few good ones, of course. As we have every... we have a caller that's we have a caller that's been waiting for some time from area code eight one four. Hello. Hi, this is Holly. Hi, Holly. I, I started to dial in, and then I was listening to Barb. I was fascinated. I really didn't yeah. mind at all waiting. I thought about hanging up, but it was just convenient to listen on the phone versus on the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I okay. I didn't mean to cut Barb off. I was really enjoying what she was um, saying. But at oh, any okay. rate, I'm here now. So um, I just wanted to let you know that I met Sarah about a year ago, and I met her online just because I came across one of her stories where she was pleading for 
someone to volunteer to be her guard because of, you know, the situation. And so I contacted and um, I tried to do that. I went up for an interview and they immediately denied me because I was a NASCA member. They really have no reason to deny me, but they did. And so then um, some time went by and I tried to visit Gary and I was thrown out then too well in the you know in the midst of us all sarah and i have become good friends and you know have um <clears throat> spent quite a bit of time together but it's just criminal what's happened there i was um i went last i believe it was thursday when she had her court hearing and they uh the one attorney immediately wanted tim and i to leave which the judge did let us stay so i had a glimmer of hope i thought well geez maybe this judge is um you know going to see things the way they really are here. Well, uh, Tim tried to uh, interject a few times, and she wouldn't let him. And at the very end, she finally did give him the floor, but no sooner did she give it to him when she just went up one side of him and down the other for, you know, I guess he's already said his Internet postings and whatnot. But that concerns me deeply because this judge doesn't know him from Adam and why did she take such a dislike to him and where did she get those I mean, she had the internet postings printed right right there on, on top of her pile of papers where did she get those did she go online looking for that information or did one of those attorneys give it to her in you know ex parte communication I don't see how Sarah and Gary are going to have a fair shot with this judge I'm, I'm real concerned about that what type of case is it Holly Pardon me? What type of case is Sarah's case? Is it a probate case? Guardianship guardianship of whom? An elderly or a child? An elder or a child? No, I'm talking about Sarah Harvey, the girl that you've been interviewing here. Sarah and Gary, her husband. Okay, I I missed the early part of the show. Um, I got confused on the time difference. Oh, I'm sorry. Who's speaking, Barb? Yeah, it's Barb. So oh, I was curious, you guys well, is, her, is her husband <laughs> ill? Is that why he's under guardianship? Yes, he had a, a he fell and had a brain injury. Ah. Uh-huh. Oh, you have to be. Yeah. Yeah, well, there was no living will, no uh, power of attorney or anything like that. So I had to file guardianship. This is Sarah Harvey. Hi. Hi. Okay, go ahead. Tell me about it. Well, you might have told other people about it. You can get my email address and send it to me. I'm probably on the same list that you were announcing the show. <laughs> well, that's, you, know. you know, this is, I think, what needs to happen here is we need to get as much exposure for this as we possibly can. Um, this is has got to be one of the most god-awful things I have heard in a long time. And... What has happened, what has transpired in the courts uh, is just unbelievable to me. And is there any chance you could you could ask for a change of venue? Yes. I mean, no? there, also, yes, there is. But there's also other things, remember. In any guardianship, that guardian who was appointed um, has a financial interest uh, in what he does. In other words, the judge approved him and all pointed him. I don't know the, the the facts of the case. But remember, therefore, he is going to be beholden to that judge, and he's going to suggest only those things that the judge would want. 
Now, there might very well be, and I have not, I have absolutely not researched the issue in New York, but there might be some benefit to the court if they find in a certain way, as there are in the family law cases. In family law cases, the law in Massachusetts, for instance, goes against all the men in divorces because they receive a federal bon- a bonus from the federal government annually. We're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars that go to these states uh, as a result of them finding uh, in favor of the women versus the men. Now, the single women get messed around if they have children and the government wants those kids because they can adopt them out. And then... Uh, the government makes money, again, from the feds in annual bonuses. I mean, I've seen one family we figured out was worth a million dollars to the government. They took six kids, a very nice family. They took six kids from that family, but they were all, um, they were attractive. They were attractive children. You get them. They do it to all colors. I mean, they cut across the minorities. There's no question. But boy, if you have a blue-eyed blonde baby, and you know, and you're a single mom, you know, be careful. They might even try to take that child before you even get out of the hospital. You've never even been able to breastfeed the child. So the the women lose in the child protection cases, and the men tend to lose in the divorce cases. That's not to say that all uh, all divorces are bad. Many there are many reasonable people who make a reasonable settlement between them. But I'm talking if the case, if there's any animosity between them, and the case does end up in court, it's a small percentage. You know, it's guaranteed the woman will win because the court will make money from her winning. And in the child protection cases, it's guaranteed that the that the mothers will lose because the court makes money from the mothers losing. The state the states do. So you want to look at this guardianship that Sarah is finding problematic. You want to look very carefully to see what financial benefit accrues to the state or to the court itself as a result of the laws. And that means reading the laws very carefully. Also reading the federal laws, because remember, it's the fed- these things stem in the federal court, and there's usually language in the federal statute which says what kind of money and what the formula is that they will use in giving annual bonuses to the states. And so you might have that going on. I do not know because I have not researched it in New York, but it's we, a possibility. We discussed that a little bit ago, Barb. That does, in fact, exist under uh, under New York law that the, the social service districts receive a uh, an allowance, uh, an expense allowance per case from both uh-huh. the state and the federal government. So the, 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 you know, the local Department of Social Services is being funded by federal money uh, that is – a, a, a ratio principle based on the cost of administering to the case. Okay. You know, I have I have heard this same system at place, and I'll tell you what it was um, in the prison system. The same system is at work, 
And every time you get stopped for anything, uh, a traffic violation right up through the worst crime you could commit, there is a uh, code, a value code attached to that infraction. And it is worth X amount of dollars. And this is under uh, Ashcroft in 2003 when he came down with the sentencing guidelines what it was was to guarantee that on, based on this crime, you would spend a minimum number of days in prison, which meant you got federal money, you got state money, you got county money. Everybody from the arresting officer through the judge and then finally the prison system makes money off that prisoner. And Merrill Lynch is the biggest purveyor of prisoner bonds in the country. They sell prisoner bonds to China. Now, what I'm wondering here is, are these people engaged in the same thing with, as you're talking about, like children being taken from their parents and how much they're worth to the system? I hear the same same system at work. Uh, I think it would be interesting to find out if uh, bonds or such are being sold based on, and I, somehow I think I'll find it, based on... Um, this case, uh, this type of situation of how much money can you make off of taking custody of someone in this state and like the gentleman that called in earlier um, that was the health care uh, provider uh, like to say outliving his life expectancy, this may be what's at work here, the dollar amount, the value on his life under a bond has been exceeded. And I'm going to be digging into that and seeing what I can uh, what I can find. We've got another caller here um, from area code 615. Who do we hey, have this here? Is Izzy. <clears throat> Hello. Hi. Hey, this hi. is Izzy. Um, hi to uh of folks that haven't met me before, Elaine and Holly and Tim. Um, mm-hmm. um, thanks for uh, taking this topic on, too. Um, what I have learned through the three-year ordeal that uh, my family has been walking through with my father um, is, uh, and I don't know what your your thoughts are on this, Tim, as it relates to the population of the area, Sarah's land. But uh, I, I all but understand now that with these guardianships and conservatorships, this is all happening in the probate court. Uh, the probate court is an entity unto itself, versus uh, like even going up one level, superior court. Um, they, at least in the in the Georgia and Tennessee code, they have incredible discretion, and there is no doubt in my mind that in small pockets, uh, on an individual basis, that they're entitled to the an abuse of their discretion. Um, due process is is totally subjective. Um, uh, things can be be very very one sided and. Um, I've sat down with an attorney to to consider, you know, pursuing some of the issues that I have in Georgia related to my father. He said, I'll be happy to take your money, but the judge can do whatever he wants. Uh, and the accountability entity for the, the, the probate system judges in the state of Georgia won't do a thing. So, for example, I mean, the, the judge can have a, a motion submitted to him uh, and have an, and sign the order on the same day. And you have no recourse. They can order a hearing in Georgia, hold me in contempt of court for not appearing in a hearing, and send a warrant up to Tennessee to have me arrested. 
That, now, that's a, that's, they'll throw it that's out. That's a misnomer, Izzy. Uh, a probate court no. does not have any jurisdiction beyond the territorial boundaries that its court uh, sits in. But, but understand, there are interstate things that are in place where a sister state will not uh, attack or uh, respond to uh, a foreign judgment from another state. And in my case, that's what they've gone through. But even though the in Tennessee, uh, the, uh, the the prosecutors and all that refused to uh, prosecute it, it was nollied and it was eventually expunged, I still had to spend three nights in jail uh, getting it sorted out and finding out, hey, wait a minute, you held a hearing and didn't notify my client, um, and as a result, he was arrested. And, there, you know, just it's... It's. Um, I say that to just put the point that what I'm seeing with the probate system, uh, it it has exclusive jurisdiction over guardianships and conservatorships in the individual state. And uh, if there's no accountability uh, or no fear of repercussion for the, the, the judges and the attorneys who are you know, uh, potentially having these incestuous relationships, they have their go-to in these small communities. Um, someone that's trying to do the right thing by a loved one doesn't have a whole lot of prayer um, unless something higher in the food chain clamps down on them. There's there's no question, Izzy, that there's a... The probate system is, is rife with local biases and prejudices. Uh, the little clubs running these probate proceedings in just about every jurisdiction that we we, we look at. The, the probate court, a lot of people don't necessarily understand. The probate court is a court of limited jurisdiction. They really are not as powerful as a superior court or a, a, Correct. a circuit. Okay. And typically, the judicial side, there's there's two sides of a probate court. There's the judicial proceedings and there's the administrative proceedings. Once a guardian is appointed, the judicial proceeding is actually concluded and the remainder of the administration takes place under the ministerial office of, of what appears to be a court and appears to be a judge, but is truly not a court or a judge. They're, no, they're merely administrative officers. Right, and there's no real the, – the requirement, again, for accountability is completely subjective. If that judge knows the attorney or whatever, filings may come in, may come in, they may not come in, they don't get checked. And, yeah. Marty, this is one of the greatest things. I don't know specifically what the dynamic is there for you, Sarah, but know that you're in our thoughts and in our prayers um, because – I believe you can take better care of your husband than any facility ever could. Um, uh, Thank you, Izzy. Hey, you're welcome. Um, um, uh, Love does a lot to people, you know, just the compassion, being there. It just makes you your heart and everything. You just feel so much better. Some of us, you know, we're at a place where uh, we see what feels like the futility of our of our endeavor, but but for whatever reason you want to call it, our, our belief in God's power, you know, whatever you want to describe it as, we don't feel a freedom to let go and just give up. And, and you know, we're going to willingly suffer 
consequences for going up against a situation where that that bias or that prejudice is there. But I hope that, uh, you know, in coming together as a group that, that we can figure out a way to, to bring accountability um, even just to the laws that are on the books. If, if the laws were followed in some of these small areas, um, I don't see this happen as much in metropolitan areas, but I definitely see it. And the attorney that I spoke with in, in Georgia a couple of weeks ago who basically said, you know, the um, – the uh, I remember sitting and with two attorneys having a debate on whether or not an, uh, the attorney that's representing the guardian and the conservator and you know everybody that's involved in this in Georgia and saying they were debating whether or not he would allow the judge would allow this attorney to throw him under the bus by continuing to violate due process and one of those two attorneys spoke up and said neither one of them is going under the bus because there is no bus. There was no accountability in the higher-up uh, uh, entities that are supposed to, you know, look at situations where the, the the judges are not following the law or the rules of the court, um, because um, that's the way it's been done there. You know, the attorney can walk over and hand a document to the judge, and he'll sign it without even reading it. Um, and uh, that's a bigger, from where I sit anyway, that's. I don't. I can't win. I can't change that system, and the dysfunctionality of it, and the incestuousness or narcissisticism or whatever you want to call it there. But I can still care about my father, and I can try to be smart. But they've made it very clear to me in my case that if I push, um, they can push back, and and their pushes will be defeated. But I'll still have to go through the hassle of whatever inconvenience. And in Sarah's case, you know, if it's a part of it is about money, but there is a power element to this too. And these people in positions of authority that have been doing it this way for an extended period of time, uh, they don't appreciate someone coming in and saying, hey, all we're doing is asking you to follow the rules. They haven't followed the rules, and they don't have a reason or a motivation to. Hey, Izzy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um... I had a meeting with the attorney this past Tuesday, the, the county attorney, and uh, it's funny how uh, I asked him, I said, what, what can I do to get my husband home? And pretty much he summed it up. I said, you just want me to be your puppet. He doesn't want me going to the media. He, doesn't, he wants me to stop complaining about the hospital, you know, advocating. He wants me to completely stop advocating for my husband. And it's like, you know, that's not going to happen. I am not going to stop advocating for my husband. You know, they can lock me up. Lock me up yeah. for protecting my it's husband because nobody else is protecting him. Guys, we we are down to about one minute left. This has been a – Sarah, we've got to have you – got to have you back on. Uh we, in fact, I, what I want to do is talk with Barb and get a maybe a special show that we do every two weeks uh, devoted just to your cause um, okay, to keep this out in front. And well, I'll um, sign people, off and say Merry aware. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to everyone. Thank Happy you. Holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Yes. Happy Kwanzaa. <laughs> whatever. Whatever you're celebrating, have a happy month. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. This is this has just been 
an absolutely excellent show. And like I say, it's so important. I think we get this out and get more people aware of it. Sarah, I'll be in touch with you about setting up. Tim, thank you for coming on. Uh, You've been uh, quite a mind blower there. And um, we'll need you to come back on too and discuss this. Um, this I have more for you, Marty. (laughs) Well, We'll we'll be back with you too. Don't don't think we won't. Uh, we're we're going to be revisiting this issue very often. Uh, Barb, I think it's time to say good night. Good night, Barb. Good night. Hi. Hi. night, everyone. <laughs> good night. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, this has just been a tremendous show, and we'll be doing it again. Good night. Thank you to everybody in the chat room. Uh, we appreciate your participation and. We'll be signing off, and we'll be back after the first of the year. Wonderful. Ciao.
Non-related bill.
boat. Culture. One can only imagine.
update system. Continue on. lights on there. reporting it. Thirty. 
connected. benefit. Corporations. And all. did not any Thank you. 
in place. No, it is. Prevent.
educate. Last one considers that. bailing out.